You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Mark 16, verse 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they may go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us for the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Today we celebrate what is the most essential and fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. That the God of the universe descended into our physical world and took on flesh and lived a holy and perfect and righteous life. And the world hated him for doing so. The world hated him for doing so. He was betrayed by his allies. He was unfollowed by his friends. Jesus absorbs the worst of all evils the world could conjure up. But here's what we realize today. Here's why we don't, like Mary, leave afraid. Because we know it was a setup. We know it was a setup. That the world and the kingdom of darkness thought that they had Jesus, God himself, exactly where they wanted him to be. But on Easter morning, they realized that he had made a fool of all of them, that he was alive, that God had taken all of his due wrath and sin, he had poured it onto the Son, and all of our ungodliness and shame was poured onto him, and he did away with it. He said it was finished. And now by his own sovereign authority and will, he has implored us, his creation, to join with him in his resurrection, to join with him in being raised to life, to be unshackled from the kingdom of death and sin and be raised with him in new life. In one movement, Jesus altered the fabric of humanity. In one divine act, Jesus changed our station. There is a story uh, from the great Napoleon, the, the emperor of France. One day, his most prized horse ran away. And hearing of this, this lowly private alerted, immediately jumped on his horse and began to pursue after the general's favorite horse. And he caught up to it and he corralled it, he pacified it, and then he brought it back. And then upon his return, Napoleon smiles at this lowly private and he says, thank you, captain. Thank you, captain. And the lowly private overjoyed in what he heard. 
took his uniform to the quartermaster and exchanged it for that of a captain. He went to his barracks, he packed up all that he belonged, and he moved himself into the officer's, uh, the officer's quarters. And in an instant, because of the words of the commander-in-chief, his status had changed from a lowly private to a commissioned officer. All he simply did was believe what his general said, and he acted accordingly. Likewise, what we celebrate this morning is this glorious change in our status that is ours by faith and faith alone. By his own sovereign authority, Jesus Christ has changed forever our station through his death and his resurrection that because of Christ, we can stand before God through the cross and through the empty tomb as one who is righteous and holy and redeemed. And so when we come to faith, it means that we shed our old life, that we put down our old self, that we are put to death, that just as Jesus died, we die. And in the same way, just as Jesus was rose from the dead, that we are raised with him, that through faith we die, but also through that same faith we are raised to new life. But the question that we ask today is, what does it mean to live this sort of resurrected life? How do we live as one who has been raised? And to understand that question, we're going to look in the, the letter to the church in Colossae, the book of Colossians, to hear the words of the Apostle Paul. Paul's letter is eager to educate the Colossians and us of the correlation between physical death and the resurrection of Jesus and how it transfers into our lives. And so we'll read this, the first four verses in Colossians 3. The Apostle Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so in this passage, we see one clear command given to us by the Apostle Paul about how we live this resurrection life. And Paul illustrates that command through three compelling reasons. Paul commands us to seek the things that are above, to set our minds on eternal things. And his reasons are threefold. We are to set our minds on the things above because of what is true of our past, that we have been raised, meaning that we have died. That number two, that we should set our minds on things above because of what is true of our present, in that we are hidden in Christ. And number three is that we should set our mind on things above because what is true of our future, that we will appear with him someday in glory. And these truths will serve as the backdrop of our message today. And so here in verse one, Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, this isn't like a, an interrogative thought. He's not asking a question. This is a declarative statement of truth. That if we are faith, it, of faith, it means that we understand the implications of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we are to have faith at all, Paul says in the book of Romans, it comes in this way. In Romans 10, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he says, then you will be saved. Paul is saying that faith means confessing in the lordship of Christ in a belief that he was raised from the dead. But more than that, because in Romans, Paul also says this, that we by faith have been united with him 
in a death like his, to be united with him in a resurrection like him. And so here's what Paul is saying. He's saying there's lots of things that we can do in this world. There's lots of things that you and I can do. We can create, we can make order, we, we can enjoy the fruits of God's creation. We can pick sport, uh, lousy sports teams that disappoint us. We can have families. We can obsess over the silliest of all things. But there's one thing that you and I can't do. No matter how much we read, no matter how many experiences we have, no matter how smart we are, no matter how much we try, there's one thing we cannot do. We cannot cause our soul to live. We don't know how to bring life to ourselves, but we spend the entirety of our human existence trying to find that which does. I have a really good friend who disagrees with me in lots of things. I don't know if you have friends that disagree with you lots of things. They're stubborn and they're annoying, right? One day he sent me a message uh, to me and a few others. He simply stated this. He said that the parents need to be careful about talking to their children uh, about the design and doctrine. That essentially it's not the parent's job to do that, as he put it, to indoctrinate our children with those things, but rather that we're simply here to guide them, to support them in their endeavor. What he is saying is that as parents, we should essentially be like training wheels on our children's bicycles that we are there to guide them in their endeavors, support them in their endeavors, but interfere minimally. That we are to gently guide the future generations where their heart leads them. And look, that sounds really good. And if you're a kid in here, that sounds awfully great. And I think that there is some truth in that we, we cannot force our kids to believe what we believe. But it's utterly failing when you think about it this way. And you know this if you have children. If I let my kids go where they would want to go as their training wheels, them and I both will face impending death. Uh, my, my kids would in a moment take their bicycles into oncoming traffic and ruin it for the both of us. It breaks down in that way. Because my friend's assumption is this. My friend's assumption is that the world is a neutral playing field. That it's some benign resource in which our children and ourselves can, in, relatively, in relative safe conditions, become all that we want to be. That we can find our life and extract all the potential from it. And that all those parents that we need to do is just to support them and let them find their way. But this is at absolute odds with what the Apostle Paul says here. Paul is saying that the world is not neutral. In fact, that it doesn't even lean a little bit bad. That it's so corrupt that the only thing that could fix it was the triune God of the universe descending into our reality and taking on flesh and enduring and taking upon himself all of our violence and all of our sin that ultimately nailed him to the cross so that God could raise us to life again. The central message of Christianity is that you cannot cause your soul to live, that your life is actually found in another land, in another person, that you actually weren't meant to live for yourself, but for the God that created you. 
and that we are not to be confused that the messaging of this world is neutral. It is not neutral. It is alluring because it so gratifies our sin of flesh. But its messaging will bend us towards destruction just like it destroyed Jesus. And so I say very respectfully for my friend, my kids don't need training wheels. They needed the illuminated truth of Jesus Christ and the prayer of the faithful that God would take those seeds and grow them in their hearts. That we are to teach doctrine and truth to our kids because somebody else will do it for us. But they won't bring them life. And so as a Christian, we have been raised to life in Christ. And there is no other way. We partake in his resurrection because Paul says that Jesus is our, is our life. And then Paul turns towards understanding how we live this life in light of the resurrection. How do we live this? That we have this new position. We have this new reality. We are raised with Christ, so we should have a new focus. And that new focus in our position should change our affections. It should change our realities. His command is this. It's simple in slang terms. Check your heart. Like, what are you pursuing? Check your heart. What are you pursuing? When we say hard here, we're referring not to the physical organ. We're talking about the moral, intellectual, emotional center of us, the seat of the human will, the thing that makes us us. Jesus is saying to us, check your heart. What are you pursuing? Seek the things. Seek the things. This is a call to evaluate our affections. What are we longing for? What are we hoping for? What are we pursuing? What do we desire? What do we spend our money on? What do we give our time to? He says, seek the things that are above. Paul's definition of above is the place where Christ is. More correctly, the position that he holds. Christ holds the position of all supreme ruler and authority. To seek the things that are above is, is a call to us and it's called to the Colossians to set their hearts and to orient their minds in light of the ultimate and eternal rule of Christ, pursue the things that are eternal, not earthly. And so how do we seek the things that are above? Well, the next part of this passage gives us the answer. It says that we are to set our minds on eternal things. As we set our mind on eternal things, our pursuits, our desires, our wants will follow after him. Because if we're going to be faithful in our pursuit of eternal things, we're going to have to guard our minds and fight to keep our attention on the things of Christ. I like to imagine it this way. If we remember, you won't remember, but if we think in our, his our history books, uh, during the time of World War II, that, that Americans who lived at home had a very, very different life than they previously had before the war. Everything in their life changed from the normative activities and routines of their life down to the mundane. All of them accounted for one thing. All of them had one focus, is that our boys would win the war and we would get them home. So those who are not off fighting the war saw it as their responsibility to sacrifice for the cause. Americans were rationed in what they could buy from grocery stores. They perused their houses, finding metal to the, take to collection places so it could be melted down into ammunition and armor. They bought war bond after war bond after war bond to make sure that the military was financially solvent. And they either, even considered that there might be spies in their midst. And so they guarded their conversations. 
But every night, year after year, every night in every home across America, they had their mindset on a different location. Their mindset on a loved one who was in a different land waging a war in Europe. And it drastically changed the way that they lived. Their mind was set elsewhere. And this is what Paul is saying to us, that if we have been raised again, we need to literally set our minds in another land, on another person. And that the whole of our lives, from the normative all the way to the mundane activities, would account for him and his purpose. And what is God's purpose for humanity? Is that he would be glorified in our lives. That the world around us would see his beauty and his love and his grace through our lives, through our actions. This is our true purpose. This is our life. That is our life. And Paul is saying that you need to take your eyes off yourself, your mind off yourself, and you need to set it on a new destination because that is where your life is. Why? Paul says, because of what is true of your past, you have been raised, meaning that you have died. Why do we seek the things above? Because we no longer live for ourselves. We have died. We've been crucified with Christ. Jesus bids us to come and die that we might truly live. The language that Paul uses here implies that we are wholly converted to the cause of Christ. And I know that term conversion can have an awful negative, negative connotation. It, it, it implores pushy Christians who are calling us to repent. And I get that. But the reality is, is whether we realize it or not, all of us will be converted to something. All of us will adapt a view of life, a way of life from the messaging of the world and the rightness of our own minds that we will look out at the world with a lens of our own rightness, and we will look at the world and we think very nonchalantly and very subtly in our own minds that if the world just believed what I believed and they did what I did, then life would be better. We want conversion in people. We want to convert people. That's the truth of us. And the reason why Christians profess their faith isn't because they're arrogant or pious, which I think there are some, right? I'm not going to deny that there aren't some of us that are like that. But it's actually because we care about the world and the people in it so much that we're willing to risk a whole lot to tell them where life is truly found. Rather than like the normative human who just sits in utter comfort and complacency, believing that they know the truth of how we should live and privately enjoying our rightness and bitterness, but we don't care enough about the world or the people that live in them, limit to tell them. We'd rather be annoyed by them. So here's the truth. The world will convert us to something. And the God of the universe has said, I want you to be wholly mine. I want you to be fully converted to my cause for my purpose. And he does that by reminding us that we are dead. We are dead. Meaning that we are empty vessels that are set aside for a new purpose, a new life. And I, I think that, uh, you know, some of us would rather be modified 
than converted, meaning that we would rather keep some of the old elements of our life, some of the things that we've done in our past, and we would just take in a few of the things that we like about Jesus, that he would modify a little bit the way that we live, that we want what the world offers us, we want what the world can give to us, but we also want heaven. And so we're willing to listen to Jesus and find the things that we like, and we're willing to change our life a little bit because I want heaven too. But the message of Paul is clear. We are dead. Jesus is clear that there is a prerequisite to life, and it is dying to ourselves to, as he says, to be born again, to be wholly converted by his grace. The second reason that, that Paul says that we should seek the things above is because what is true of our present, that we have been hidden in Christ Because we've been unified with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, we are also now in him, which means that our life is no longer about us, but about the one who hides us. This is the beauty of Christ, that through his scars and his blood and his resurrection, he grants to us a righteousness or right standing in front of God by his grace, a new life by his grace, he hides us. Meaning that when God sees us, he sees his son. Now that sounds weird, but let me illustrate it this way. Imagine it this way. Think of a king that sends out his son into battle, into another land. The son goes out and he's incredible. He perseveres, he outwits, he outduels, he outsmarts, he's gallant, he's just, he's noble, he leads with kindness, he's unwavering, he's meek but bold. And he conquers the day and he routs them in victory. What do you think the father will do when his son returns? He will set up a coronation. When the son returns, he will be grateful. He will celebrate. What will he do? He'll usher his son into the castle and he will say this here at my right hand. You will rule with me over the kingdom. And upon his return, upon his coronation, the son will look at his delighted father and he'll say this. He's with me. She's with me. And for the father who is so delighted in his son, those are all the words that he needs to hear. They're with me. We are hidden in Christ. We live because of him. We are healed because of him. We are raised because of him. All of our life is to be devoted to him. That his greatness would be known to the world through us. That others might actually meet him in us. And so we set our eyes, we set our minds on his kingdom. Number three, we seek things above because of what is true of our future, that you will appear with him in glory. Even though we have this new position as being one raised from the dead, we still are constantly constrained by our flesh, constantly in struggle in the world. But this is only temporary because one day Christ will return and we will join him in glory. And so the priority of the believer is actually to live lives on this earth as if the only life that matters is the one that is to come, that we would be willing to live insignificant lives according to the world standards because this life doesn't actually matter, that our eternal life is all that matters, 
that the scriptures say that we would live lives full of meekness and humility, poverty in spirit, humble servants with the aim of elevating others that they might see the one in which elevated us. Because my glory is not in the now. There is no glory for me to be found in this world. My glory comes with him when he appears. You know, wouldn't it be great that if somehow the space-time continuum broke down and we were able to meet a future version of ourselves, one that had lived in eternity, to hear the advice that they would give to ourselves? How much struggle would they save us from on this earth to hear how everything did work out? And to be careful of that individual trouble. But here's what Paul is saying, is that you cannot, cannot do that. Your eternal self cannot come back to you. But you can seek your eternal self. You're told to keep seeking and setting your mind on the things above. If you focus on your future and the glory that we have in Christ, you will have power in the present to overcome fleshly indulgences in your sinful nature. And so these are the glorious truth of life in the resurrection that we are to live as one who is wholly converted to the cause of Christ, that we are to set our minds on the things that are above in another world, on another person, on Christ Jesus. And we do it, and we do it because what is true of our past? We have been raised, meaning that we've died. Because what is true of our present? We are hidden in Christ. We are his. And we set our minds on the things above because of what is true of our future that we will appear with him someday in glory. And so today we behold our God because there is nothing else that is worthy of our praise. And let us live as holy, converted believers, sustained by his grace in this, the new life that he has given us.